Oh, good afternoon, everyone. Sorry for the small technical delay. But now we are not only here, but we are also live on the web. Thank you all for joining us today um, for the next audition of our MEDAM seminar, the last one before the summer break. So thank you all particularly for coming today. MEDAM is the Mercator Dialogue on Asylum and Migration, and the project constitutes a research alliance of SEPS, the Kiel Institute for the World Economy, and the Migration Policy Center in Florence, and is funded by Stiftung Mercator. My name is Andreas Backhaus. I am a research fellow here at SEPS and a member of the MEDAM project. Today we are joined by Professor Eric Kaufman, who will present his most recent book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck, University of London. A Canadian citizen, he was born in Hong Kong and spent eight years of his early life growing up in Tokyo. Eric holds a PhD from the London School of Economics, and prior to White Shift, he has published the critically acclaimed books the, the Orange Order, A Contemporary Northern Irish History, as well as Shaw's the Religious Inherits the Earth, Religion, Demography, and Politics in the 21st Century. For the next half an hour, Eric will delight us with a presentation of the research and conclusions from White Shift. Then I will follow up with a short discussion, and then we will have plenty of time to open the floor for your questions and a broader discussion among all of us. So Eric, you're welcome, and the floor is yours. Okay, well, Andreas, uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here in Brussels. And uh, uh, today, so I'm gonna be speaking about my, my book, White Shift, which is, now many of you are economists and, and you're involved in policy, so this is a rather larger, uh, it's a big book which covers politics, sociology, demography, and I kind of wanted to bring sort of separate discussions together, discussions over, for example, populist right voting, attitudes to immigration, uh, assimilation, and also um, de ethnic segregation, residential segregation, bring it all together under one rubric. Um, and the rubric really here, white shift, what this refers to, this title, it means two things. Besides an agent wanting me to have a one-word title, um, the idea is essentially that our politics and societies are being shaped by um, the decline of white ethnic majorities. And now this, these groups might refer to themselves by a name such as ethnic Swedes in Sweden or native Dutch in, in the Netherlands. So there may be different proper names, but essentially what I'm referring to are the largest communities that see themselves as descended from common ancestors. Um, and if we think about the global demographic shifts that parts of the world are aging and have below replacement fertility. Other parts of the world, even though the, they are moving through the demographic transition, still have very young populations and are, sent, are the source of many, uh, m many of the migration flows coming to the West. Uh, and so in this period then of ethnic change, how are the white majorities responding? Because I don't think these demographic changes threaten the nation state, the state, the political territorial units. There's no threat of warfare, there's no cold war going on. Things that might lead to territorial revisionism, invasion, that's really not uh, the problem of our century. The problem is um, ethnocultural shifts uh, brought on by global demographics that are primarily hitting the, these ethnic majorities within nation states. So not the political territorial unit, but the largest communities of shared ancestry and that have a particular um, collective memory and consciousness. So that's what I'm really gonna be talking about is how are these ethnic communities responding to these demographic shifts? I talk about four 
uh, responses in the book, uh, fight, flee, you know, taking from fight or flight or to use um, Albert Hirschman's term exit voice. So those are two options. You can sort of fight the change or you can flee the change through dem uh, ethnic segregation, what we might think of as white flight or white avoidance uh, or, or hunkering down as Robert Putnam talks about in terms of uh, segregated social networks. We also have two other responses, um, one of which is um, what I call repress, which is sort of repressing the desire to sort of resist this change in the name of a anti-racist mor morality. So this is part of the bigger story of liberal egalitarian ideological shifts that have also taken place since, in particular, the 1960s in the West, which play into this in a very important way. And then finally, what I call join. So the last response is you join with uh, the new challenge in terms of interracial marriage assimilation. So that's a sort of long-term part of the book. So white shift refers first to that, the decline of white ethnic majorities now, which is reconfiguring, I would argue, our politics and making cultural issues more important, economic issues less important for structuring politics. And then longer term, um, the meaning of these white majorities is going to shift as populations become increasingly mixed race, and so the meaning of whiteness will change over time. But I'm not going to talk about that. I'm happy to talk about it in the, the Q&A, since we have quite a bit of time. I'm going to move fairly quickly uh, through the data, and, and then I'm happy to unpack this in the question and answer session, because we have quite a bit of time. So the first question I, I want to pose to you is, well, the, the question many have asked is, why uh, do people vote for the populist right? One of the explanations is the so-called left-behind hypothesis, that it's people who are economically deprived or who live in communities that are deprived, that are forgotten, that have been bypassed by globalization, so outside of major metropolitan areas. Um, and I think the data that I've looked at, the large-scale data, does not really back up this explanation very well. It's not to say there's nothing in it, but what we're, when we talk about the populist right, not the populist left like Syriza or Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders, but the populist right, um, Trump, Brexit, voting for Le Pen, for example, AFD, this is primarily to do with cultural psychological questions and not material questions. So it's not the old material left-right politics. It's much more the new politics of what some have called open-closed or what David Goodhart calls the somewheres who are rooted in community in the anywheres. But even that somewhere-anywhere distinction, which is, is essentially trying to divide the population on the basis of people who live within 20 miles of where they were born and those who've moved further away from where they were born and they have different outlooks, I think there is something to that for sure. But I still think the deeper divide is psychological. It gets fundamentally down to how people are wired at that base level. And I want to show you some um, psychological mapping data, which I think illustrates this quite well. And this is from a, a firm called Cultural Dynamics, which run, um, they do values mapping. They ask about 200 questions, which are all mapped out here in uh, two-dimensional space. And what they find is that people's answers to these questions tend to cluster. And so here's, a, uh, this is from 2015, and the question is, um, feelings towards the UK Independence Party, which was a populist right party in Britain, um, and which question answers correlate best with support for the UK Independence Party. Um, this section of the values map, which is referred to as the settlers, 
is the main sort of support base for the UK Independence Party. And it would be the same map if we looked at France and the Front National or Germany and the AFD. Whereas this part of the map, known as the pioneers, are the least, are the coolest towards UKIP. The distinction here really is on values, and these deep values are, according to some psychologists, between a third and a half heritable. So they are deeply rooted, and they change; they don't change a, a great deal over the life course. Um, and so some people see change as loss, and some people see difference as disorder. Other people see change as opportunity, exciting, etc. This part of the values map would tend to see changes, loss, differences, disorder, much more. So something like attitudes towards capital punishment, uh, discipline of children, national security, um, nostalgia, those are all picking up support for the UK Independence Party, whereas something like the big five personality trait of openness, high openness, very low uh, support for the UK Independence Party. The point here is that even within, say, university-educated populations, you're going to get settlers. And within rural working-class populations, you're going to get pioneers, people who have that more liberal outlook. So this is actually something that cuts through these social groupings. And is, so this kind of a explanatory framework, I think, is more powerful than looking at class, looking at income, looking at whether you live in a large city or in the countryside. Those are, I think, relatively less important. The local really does not explain this phenomenon. It's much more of a national, individual level phenomenon. And local level differences are not that important, I would argue. Um, and, and just by way of illustration, if we look at London, which is seen as this very uh, a place that voted to remain in the European Union versus, say, the north of England being a leave, particularly smaller communities in the north of England, actually Almost 40% of London voted to leave the EU, and if we take into account the fact that London is 55% non-white British and has a higher share of people with advanced degrees and a higher share of people in their 20s, if we strip all that away and we compare, say, a white working-class Londoner to a white working-class person anywhere in the rest of England, uh, there's no difference in their propensity to vote leave. So that's actually a bit of an illusion to think that there's something about the economy or society of London that makes people Remainers, actually not really. So you have to look, I think, more at these individual level. And, and, and also within two-person couple households in, in uh, England, um, roughly 27% of those two-person couple households had a split on the referendum vote, which shows you how individual level this is. Um, so it's a very kind of individual level, and the, the, the orientation is national. Um, just to show you this in a bit more detail, um, this looks at a question which you might not think is related to voting to leave the European Union, the death penalty. Nobody was talking about, we want to leave the EU because we want to bring back the death penalty. It wasn't uh, something that people were campaigning on. And yet, what we see is people who agreed strongly with the death penalty had about a 0.7, chance of saying they were going to vote to leave. This is just prior to uh, the vote. Um, 2016 British election study, internet panel, 18,000 samples. So it's a very large sample. Um, by contrast, those most against the death penalty, only about a 0.2 likelihood of voting to leave. So you've got a 50-point gap between the least and most supportive of the death penalty. On the other hand, if we look at income levels, low, medium, high, uh, there's nothing, essentially. Now, I'm not saying there is nothing. Post the vote, as we'll see, there is 
an effect where poorer people were more likely to vote to leave. But um, the economic uh, things like class, income matter a lot less than these values. Death penalty is very much linked to this orientation some psychologists would call authoritarianism, which is very much that part of that settler group that you saw on the values map. Another orientation is um, what's known as status quo conservatism, wanting the present to be like the, the past, seeing change as loss. A question that gets at that would be to say, things in my country were better in the past. Agreement with that also tends to be highly predictive of support for the populist right. But even more important than values on this authoritarian dimension or on the status quo conservatism dimension is attitudes to immigration. Um, so for example, if, if we look after the vote to leave the European Union, um, the question, should more immigrants be allowed into Britain, allow many more, is it 10? Allow uh, essentially zero is, is over here. Um, what you can see is if you want essentially no immigration, your chance of voting leave is, is around 0.8. And if you want many more, it's about zero. So that's about an 80 point difference. Now, there's almost, there are very few people down here, but still. It just shows you how important attitudes to immigration, almost as important as attitudes to the European Union. So this is incredibly important to explaining the leave vote. Now, by contrast, if we look at these income bands, yes, it's the case that the wealthiest people earning over 60,000 pounds a year were a little bit less likely to vote leave. That's maybe 10, 15 points at the most compared to 80 points. So it's a much smaller part of the story. Um, again, that's reinforcing this argument that it's identity threat-based, values-based factors and not material factors that are central to explaining who votes for these parties or, or for populist right positions. Even more extreme example of this is the Trump vote. This is from the 2016 American National Election Survey. Um, the question here is, What's your preferred immigration level? Increase it a lot or reduce it to, to reduce it a lot? If you say reduce it a lot amongst white Americans, over a 80% chance that you'll have voted for Trump. If you say increase it a lot, it's only about under a 0.1 chance. So there's a 70-point a gap on the immigration question between those who want to increase immigration a lot and those who want to reduce it a lot in terms of voting for Donald Trump. Whereas if we look at these income bands, there is nothing there at all. Now, I actually think in the American case, income and material factors almost don't matter at all. Uh, whereas in the Brexit case, they do matter, but they matter a lot less than um, these cultural issues around immigration. Now, you might say, well, the reason people are concerned about immigration is also economic. It's not um, purely a matter of values and culture. And I think there's some evidence for that, but I think actually if you look at predictors of immigration attitudes, the value stuff comes out much, much more than it, um, economics. And again, here we, look in, we can look at the correlation between, uh, or the pre predicted probabilities based on views of death penalty and attitudes to immigration. So if you strongly agree with the death penalty, you're, uh, you essentially are at almost the most restrictive part of the scale on attitudes to immigration. If you strongly disagree with the death penalty, you're happy with current levels. This is a 10-point scale. So behind the immigration attitudes lies values. It's essentially your psychological values on the values map, the settler group, 
if you're in the settler group as, as opposed to the pioneer group, you're, you're far, far more likely to vote populist right, regardless of income. Um, and that sort of those deep authoritarian conservative values then inform your immigration opinion. So there's a very strong link from the values to immigration attitudes, which then has a very strong link to populist right support. Now, the question we could still, we, we still may want to ask is, well, if this is the case, why is it only now that we're seeing a surge in populist right voting? Um, and here I think I would bring in the question of what's been happening to numbers of migrants. So even though people get, we know that people get the number of migrants in a population wrong by an order of two to three. So it's not the case that people are able to accurately assess the proportion of migrants at any given point in time. But when, he, when we look at change over time, people's assessments seem to be more linked to numbers. And so this is from, again, uh, Britain, where there is a, uh, an Ipsos Mori, which is a major polling company, asks a question, what are the most important issues facing the country? And we have the numbers saying immigration essentially in, in this series, uh, this index. Uh, against that, we have the net migration figures, which is the, essentially a measure of immigration into Britain. If we go back to 1984, it's running at sort of between zero and 50,000. This is this net migration. Britain had the lowest um, immigration in Western Europe for many years. Not many years, but say between 1970 and the mid-1990s. Starting with the Blair government in 1997, the net migration rises from about 50,000 up to uh, 150, up to 250, and then under the Cameron conservative government up to 330,000 at the peak. As that uh, migration number is rising, we see this, uh, a larger share of people saying immigration is the number one issue facing Britain. So there's a connection. Now, it, there's also a rising number of media stories, by the way, uh, which is the LexisNexis news story series. These series are moving together. So we're seeing a rise in migration numbers and a rise in the share of people saying immigration is my most important issue. Important point here. Rising migration doesn't make many people shift from saying, I want immigration um, to stay the same to I want it to be reduced. So immigration attitudes are not what change. They actually change relatively little, if at all. But within the, typically the majority of the population that wants lower numbers, instead of immigration being their number five issue after health care and the economy, it rises up to be their number one or two issue. And that's the big shift, the rise in salience within the chunk of the population that already wants lower numbers. And, and that's connected to migration levels. Okay, so let's look at another example, which is um, arrivals of irregular migrants to the Spanish coast between 2001 and 2014. And again, the number of people saying that uh, immigration is a top three concern for Spain. Again, you see this relationship between the numbers arriving and the numbers who say this is a top three concern. So there is a relationship between actual numbers and immigration salience, right? So that's the only relationship I'm trying to establish first. Um, we can see this at the EU-wide level as well. So this is from the Eurostat uh, figures looking at um, non-EU citizens um, migrating in, and it starts to rise in 2013 and then in 2014, and it hits a peak with a migrant crisis in 2015 before declining again in 2016-17. If we then move over to the Eurobarometer uh, question on the most important issue facing the European Union, 
The same question is asked, by the way, the most important issue facing the country. We get a very similar pattern. Uh, the rise begins in 2013, picks up in 2014 to a peak in 2015, and then goes down. It's following that, um, the trajectory of the numbers. And, and actually, if we think about a, a sort of natural experiment where we have the 2007-8 economic crisis, and we compare that to the 2015 migrant crisis, and we say which which of these affected a immigration attitudes, but particularly populist right support. 2007-8 uh, crisis, no consistent effect on populist right support. The 2015 crisis had a major effect, and I think that shows you the difference just in that natural experiment between these two explanations, one which is based on economics and material deprivation and the other based on migration. It's the migration which has the much stronger effect on the populist right, not the populist left, but populist right. Here's another example from uh, a paper by Roland Kappe on, uh, of the University College of London looking at uh, Germany and the rise of, the, uh, of polling support for the alternative for Germany, or AFD. Um, what occurs is you, oops, sorry, um, you have uh, a, a rise. This is monthly refugee arrivals. It starts to pick up in 2015 in a serious way to that peak and then declines. And um, what happens is the AFD, which was formerly an, a Eurosceptic party, which wasn't focused on immigration, gets a change of leadership and Frauke Petri uh, becomes leader. And then what happens, uh, according to COP, is we have a month-on-month -month correlation, significant correlation between monthly refugee arrivals and polling, increase in polling numbers for the AFD. Again, it's illustrating a, a similar pattern, I would argue, that with the rise in numbers, you get immigration becoming a more important issue. And then with immigration becoming a more important issue, you get rising support for populist right parties. Um, here's a paper that looked at this in, in detail across a number of European countries. It's James Dennison and Andrew Geddes of the European University Institute in Florence. And they did a paper uh, that, uh, that essentially finds that in nine out of 10 major EU countries, uh, Western European EU countries, the rise in uh, populist right support is correlated with the salience measure, the percent saying immigration is the most important issue facing my country, which has, as we've seen is correlated with actual numbers of migrants. So there is this, uh, I think, a fairly robust case to be made that, there, that um, the rise in the populist right is connected then to rise in um, migration numbers. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that in, this is all demand-side driven, that this is all migration driven. There is also political supply factors around media and political elites. Um, particularly if we look at the American case, I think you can see a mixture of demand-side factors around migration, but also important, quite important supply-side factors. Um, and this is essentially asking the question of Americans, uh, sorry, of Republican voters in the United States. What is the most important issue facing the United States? And this is the share saying immigration. We have records going back to the early 1930s. Uh, and for between the early 1930s and the early 1990s, the number of people saying immigration is the top issue facing America is precisely zero for 60 years. Starting in the early 1990s, the issue starts to emerge, but at a quite low level. Um, then, 
Starting in sort of mid-2014, mid there's a, a large arrival of tens of thousands of Central American refugee mothers and children to the border. Um, at that time, we get a spike in the number of Americans saying immigration is the top issue. Now, we'd seen a spike in 2006-07 as well, but what's unique about this new spike is that the proportion of Republican voters saying immigration is the most important issue remains steady. It doesn't drop back down like it did previously, but it remains solidly at 10% or higher, generally, through mid-2014, through the Republican primaries, when Donald Trump was running, and then the election. That is unprecedented in since our records begin, and that allows a new issue to emerge which Trump was able to capitalize on. He was able to, he was the only one of 17 primary candidates to make immigration central to his pitch, and that was key. If we look at the data, people who were upset about immigration were the most likely to switch, say, who might have been Obama voters were the most likely to switch to Trump. So immigration was absolutely critical. But this graph also shows that demand side is not the whole story, because since late 2017, we've seen a rise in the share of Republicans saying a substantial rise in the share of Republicans saying immigration is the most important issue. This is because this is because of a couple of things. One is queuing from Donald Trump and the New Republican Party. Also, the right-wing media, which up until 2016 really was not uh, concerned with immigration as an issue, suddenly became more concerned with it. So, absolutely, supply-side factors do play a role, but demand-side factors also do play a role. Um, Part, one of the responses that we see in, uh, that I posit that we see is this issue of, um, well, I, 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 I sort of have these four responses of ethnic majorities to demographic shifts. One is to resist those shifts, to sort of fight them. Another is to actually say, well, I want to resist those shifts, but I would be a bad person if I did because that's kind of a racist thing to do. Um, the, what's interesting is only part of the population has that response, that sort of moral anti-racist moralism response, part of the population actually reacts against that. And this is the origin, I think, of the kind of polarization that we're seeing in US politics, and to some extent, even in, in Europe as well. Um, what happens with a sort of progressive anti-racist moralism is it helps to keep the lid first on the politics of anti-immigration and populist right support. However, a problem arises because what this means is that the, the definition of racism expands to include discussions of immigration levels. And in countries such as the United States, Germany, and Sweden, just to take a few examples, Britain much less so, but in places like Sweden and Germany, uh, so in Sweden in 2013, the interior minister wanted to have a discussion over migration levels, was attacked in the media and by other politicians as racist effectively. This sort of silenced that discussion, but what that means is nobody is having that discussion, and that opens up an opportunity, a market opportunity for a new political entrepreneur, which others is the populist right party. An analogy I give is if you are in a communist society and the department store is only supplying one brand of, of pants, then the black market will pop up to supply the other types of pants. And in this case, uh, there was only one uh, set of policies on immigration levels being supplied by the mainstream parties. So somebody else is going to pop up who's going to be the political black marketeer, which will be a Trump or a political or a populist right party to supply uh, what the market is seeking. Now, of course, you don't always want as a mainstream party to supply what the market is seeking. So 
I always use the example of uh, George Wallace in 1968 who ran on a segregationist platform and the main parties were correct to isolate him. But on an issue such as migration levels, I don't think it has the same implications. It's not really about denying civil rights uh, and equality to individuals. And so it should have been handled by the main parties. Well, what happens is the populist right moves in, uh, has a market opportunity, and so, for example, in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats in 2014 uh, come in on 12.5% and reach as high as 25% in the polls, um, which I don't think would have happened if the mainstream parties had got hold of this issue. And what's happened since, of course, is mainstream parties have moved onto that territory to get the voters back from the populist right. And we've seen that in, in a whole host of places. Theresa May in Britain, Mark Rutte in the Netherlands, Sebastian Kurtz in Austria, and recently the, the Social Democrats in Denmark as well. Um, so, but then the, there is a second issue which I think is only present in the United States, and that is a sort of direct um, blowback, a direct response to what is seen as um, a sort of excessive anti-racist moralism, this political correctness. And uh, Donald Trump was able to effectively weaponize that. Uh, there have been a number of, of quite interesting experiments, uh, w one of which, this is just an example. I've only got five minutes, so I'll try and move it along. But you, know, you might take a couple of hundred people in a sample. Um, one group reads this paragraph, one group reads nothing. And we look at the difference in their assessment of Donald Trump, the candidate. The group that read this paragraph saying, we would like your opinion on social norms, it's important that we refrain from saying negative things deemed as politically correct to say, better to have rules that constrain us from anything that might sound too negative or offensive to members of particular groups. People who read that paragraph became significantly more supportive of Donald Trump. Um, and so in the survey of people, the people who didn't see any paragraph, uh, Hillary Clinton had a very clear advantage over Trump those who read the paragraph, Trump pulls almost even with Clinton. Um, in the American National Election study, next to attitudes towards immigration, hostility to political correctness is the second most important predictor. Uh, white identification is third. But, so that hostility to political correctness was weaponized very effectively by Trump in the primaries. So this is covering um, the primaries when people were saying, should I vote for Trump as the Republican leader or Ted Cruz or one of the other, John Kasich or one of the other candidates. Very important because once Trump became leader of the Republican Party, he could marshal all of the forces of the Republican Party behind him. Uh, so this sort of weaponization of political correctness becomes important. And so looking, sort of stepping back for a second, there's two things going on. One is that depending on one's own values and, and psychology in particular, um, immigration is either seen as a negative thing or perhaps a positive thing. So you have this different response to migration leading to a kind of polarization. But then on top of that, you have the attitude uh, to whether it's even valid to be talking about immigration or is that immoral. And that sort of second response is typically more liberal voters reacting to the populist voters. So it's the populist voters first and then the liberal voters reacting to the populist, which is the second layer of, of polarization around values. Just to show you how intense this is in the US case, if we, there, there was a question that I fielded in 2017 asking, um, do you think it is A, racist, or B, racially self-interested, which is not racist, right? So notice the difference between is, is 
defending one's ethnic group interest by wanting less migration. Racist or is it just racially self-interested, which is not. Is it groupist, tribalist, but not racist? Um, and what you see is a very clear uh, cutting of the pie between, amongst white American voters. So white Democratic voters with postgraduate degrees, 91% say this is racist. Um, white Trump voters without degrees, it's only 6%. Um, so an absolutely massive, and if we just take all white Trump voters, sort of just over uh, 10%, all white Clinton voters, 70%. Non-white uh, Democrats, it's about 60%, and non-white voters as a whole, 45 So non-white voters are kind of in the middle between the white progressives and the white conservatives on this question. Um, and what that means then is when we come to the 2016 election and we say, okay, um, attitudes to immigration amongst white Republicans versus white Democrats, almost no difference from 1992 through to even Romney's, uh, the, the Romney versus... Um, Obama contest, there was maybe a little bit of a difference, but once we get to Trump versus Clinton, it's 50 points. So there's this ex huge polarization that occurs. Um, and that's not just because of populist right voters sort of moving more harshly against immigration due to party switching, but it's also more about Clinton and Democrats and progressives becoming more pro-immigration. Now about 60% of white progressives favor increased immigration in the US. So that's actually a response to populism, which exacerbates this polarization. Um, I won't talk about this, but something similar has occurred in Britain. There is now a 50-point gap between leave and remain voters on whether immigration should be reduced, which is the same size gap as the gap between white um, Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. So it's the same kind of polarization that we're seeing over these, the key issue being immigration, because it's the def central defining issue for both um, the demographics, but also the value conflict over the legitimacy of politicizing immigration, and in particular immigration as, as, is it legitimate to slow it down to protect sort of culture? So for example, 100%, not 99, but 100% of AFD voters in Bavaria agreed with the statement, Germany is gradually losing its culture. Um, and sort of yeah, almost 100%, 99% of Sweden Democrats uh, want immigration reduced. So that's kind of giving you a sense of just how important that issue is for the populist right. And just looking at the European electoral map, I think we can see signs, again, of this realignment from the left-right economic questions of redistribution uh, versus lower tax and economic uh, growth. That old question is being overshadowed by this kind of open, be closed, or globalist nationalist, or somewhere, anywhere, whatever you want to phrase it, the new cultural politics. If we just look at the last 2019 European elections compared to 2014, two groups are expanding their vote, populist right-wing nationalists compared to 2014, and Greens and Liberals also. So these, the Greens and Liberal votes, you could argue, are representing that more open kind of liberal cultural value space, and then the conservative, sorry, the right-wing nationalists and populists is that more conservative ethno-cultural uh, value space. Or in Britain, uh, the surge in the Brexit party and the surge in the Liberal Democrats, both of whom I think have this more sort of cultural uh, approach in terms of the kinds of people they're appealing to. It's not so much based on class and income, it's much more based on values. And so that value split is playing a much bigger role in politics. Okay. Um, 
very, I just want to say, I've, I've only got a couple minutes. Okay. I'm going to try to be quick on solutions here, uh, policy solutions. I can expand upon this in, your, in the Q&A. Um, the first thing I want to say is very important how immigration and national identity is framed uh, by political elites. That if you say that the country is changing and immigration is transforming things, uh, everything's different, diversity is great, that message e goes down really badly with conservative voters. Um, what actually, sh and in fact, one of the things we know, again, people overestimate the share of immigrants, uh, ethnic minorities, by a factor of two, three, or more. The goal should probably be to try and dampen down some of the um, wilder claims. And so one of the ways I, I would suggest doing this is to have a different message for conservative voters from liberal voters. Liberal voters, you can go in with diversity change. That's a winner. Uh, when it comes to conservative voters, you want to be talking about how immigration is coming in. But as in the past, it's simply kind of melting in. There's not going to be that much change. The nation is going to be remaining more or less as it always has been. It's a bit like if you look at the river. Um, yeah, it's always new water in the river, so it's always changing. But at the same time, it also remains the same. And you want to say, to one set of voters, things are remaining the same. To another set of voters, things are always changing. You can't. If you, you have to work with the grain, I think, of the psychological values uh, of each group. So it's a different message for different groups. And actually, it's not contradictory because you can always say both are true because they are both true. They're just different ways of looking at the same picture. Um, on immigration, uh, again, what I favor is an accommodation between liberal and conservative groups uh, that, that hopefully we can discuss this rationally. We should be able to discuss the immigration rates like tax rates. Um, we shouldn't be th talking about globalist traitors versus racist xenophobes. It shouldn't be moralized in such a way that these groups are pitted against each other in a sort of black and white way. Rather, it's, it's not open versus closed, it's slower versus faster, it's shades of gray. So we need to move back to discussing immigration in that more reasonable way about levels. Um, and it may be that people favor a lower level than is economically optimal. Uh, I think that needs to be in a democracy that needs to be accepted if after, uh, if, if migration is low for a while, people realize actually there are economic costs to this, then that case hopefully will be made, and then people can say, okay, now we would actually like, it's okay to have higher numbers again. Um, perhaps temporary migration programs or temporary refugee uh, facilities are a way of, of, of also approaching this because those sorts of temporary programs don't have the same implications for um, citizenship and belonging. And, and because they don't impact citizenship and belonging, they're less likely to, to lead to opposition, I would argue. Last slide, absolutely, um, is that similarly when, when we talk about, we need to first of all have a future for ethnic majorities. The story that we tell about these declining majorities cannot just be, you're declining, you're the bad old past, and you're being replaced by wonderful multicultural diversity. That, that is going to go down very badly with conservative voters. Uh, the story that I'm sort of more partial to is to say the ethnic majority has a future um, through interracial marriage and through assimilation. 
voluntary assimilation, it will maintain its memories, traditions, uh, myths of ancestry, etc. Um, so it does have a future, and I think that's important to reassure conservative voters. When it comes to national identity, I think there has to be an acceptance that not everyone is going to identify the same way to the nation. Some people want to identify with the landscape, history, even with their many generations' ancestry on the land. That's okay. Other people want to identify with multiculturalism, diversity. That also is okay. People have different ways of imagining the nation. We know in England, for example, that um, ethnic minorities are much less likely to identify with the English landscape and history as part of their Englishness. Um, leavers are less likely to identify with England's diverse cultural life let's, uh, than remainers. So we need to allow people to have flexibility. So it's a menu approach, not a hymn sheet approach to national identity, not a one-size-fits-all republicanism, British values, etc. This is the nation. No, it's got to be more flexible than that. And politicians should be able to reference both that more conservative uh, sense of nationhood and the more liberal sense, depending on the audience. If ever challenged on it, the response is, well, there are many ways to be British, French, etc. It's not one way to be British. Okay, I'm going to just stop there. Thanks a lot, Eric. Um, before we open the floor, just some brief uh, note from me. Um, so what you said about the stability of values um, that they we see them changing very slowly is actually supported also by research done by our partners. Um, in Kiel, we have found actually my attitudes towards um, migration are quite stable across uh, many European countries. Of course, I'm an economist, so I promised you before I will not go too mad on the empirics and not cite too many economist studies who, of course, find it's the economy that's driving Brexit and um, populist support and so on, um, like studies by Dorn and Autor. Uh, one thing I liked your I think it was very convincing when you said we had the financial crisis that we didn't see anti-immigration sentiment go up. We saw it only go up in a mass influx of uh, refugees five or seven years later. There I would argue, well, the effect of this financial crisis before did not just evaporate into nothing. There was maybe, I guess what also is supported by the data is, let's say, the people who identify as white British, for example, have been on a downward slope economically for quite a while, at least, um, in the lower income, lower education classes. So would you argue eco economic arguments are completely out of the window, or is it some combination of downward sloping um, economic relative position plus then a new challenge to identity and also some labor market implications, of course, of new immigration? Right, right. I think you could certainly see in the British case that um, poorer people were more likely to vote leave. So there is some economic effect in Britain, I would argue. Whereas I don't see it in the United States. I think it's almost zero from what I can see in the U.S. Um, 
But in terms of the timing and the chronology, uh, I'm not I'm not sure that that the austerity argument really does stack up. I think, for example, if we had this kind of migration in an earlier period when you had maybe ro more robust industrial employment, we would have seen the same result. And in fact, there are, I mean, there are historical instances. So for example, the Irish Catholic migration to the west coast of Scotland in the period from the late 19th century to through the sort of First World War, through the Second World War. Uh, but you can see that there was a big rise in um, anti-Catholic populist parties getting as much as a third of the vote. Or, or even if you look in England at the, at the Powell, the Enoch Powell uh, period, and you, you, you can see that, that that message resonated very well, even at a time when we didn't have as much deindustrialization. So I think there is this kind of gradual economic restructuring and deindustrialization, but I'm not persuaded that it is really telling us very much in terms of populist right support. Not populist left support, but populist right. Talking about persuasiveness of um, arguments in politics, uh, I liked how you gave some solutions based on the framing that we use in politics, um, which often has much bigger effect, I guess, than actual policies changing outcomes. And you suggested a framing um, that the parties basically should reframe migration, which I think we see they're trying to do. For example, in Germany, I see the problem that, or I see the problem for the Christian Democrats who have been the majority party in government, who they still are. Um, they've been in government during basically Merkel open border policies, and now they try to rebrand themselves as kind of a law and order party who is the only one in Western Europe basically standing up for restricted migration, which as I just observe it, nobody believes really. So do you see the credibility problem that the parties have difficulties reversing their course credibly and gaining um, back territory from the populists? Um, I think there is a credibility issue that certain parties are more trusted on the immigration issue. Um, but I think we have seen sort of mainstream parties successfully take back that issue. At least the, the voters seem to be willing to give them a chance to do that. And I think, so in the, in the case of Britain, first Cameron was given that opportunity when he said he would bring the numbers down into the quote unquote tens of thousands. He was completely unable to do that. Um, and then, so that then again leads to a, a kind of populist response. So they, now what we're seeing, I mean, it'll be interesting in Denmark, or, but certainly in the Netherlands case, it doesn't seem as though the numbers were able, they were able to bring the numbers down. So I do think voters are willing to give the mainstream parties an opportunity, particularly with a new leader. How many opportunities, it's not clear. Um, but if the mainstream parties are not able to reduce numbers as the Cameron government was unable to do, then the populist right will come right back in. So it has to be both both the, the way they talk about that the fact that they're talking about the issue but also that they're able politically and in policy terms to reduce the numbers then I think um, people will transfer their votes away from the populist right yeah I also like the idea of your tax rate reframe from the from the sense from the view of persuasion because of course taxes are I guess suited for this because taxes are boring so um, it's a very non-emotional topic, um, contrasted to immigration, which is a very emotional topic. 
but isn't that exactly what makes immigration such an active topic in the debate because it's easy, so easy to rise up emotions of voters with that. It's so easy to polarize a society for gains, which is a play that the populist parties all understand very well. So is there any realistic space, basically? Yeah, it's, that's a tough one. I mean, I don't think we're anywhere near to uh, taking the steam out of this issue. I, I would like to see... I would like to see politicians moving in that direction to be able to say, um, you know, the people who oppose our view on immigration are not either globalist traitors or racist xenophobes. They have legitimate arguments. We have legitimate arguments. We need to make an accommodation. I don't see a lot of evidence that people on different sides of this issue are willing to accept the other side. And, and that's, I think, the problem is that, that there's a moralization of this issue uh, into a you know, black-white issue that there is, you're either with us or against us, and I think that sort of framing, I, I think this is just a, an overall system responsibility to try and get away from black-white to shades of gray and compromise. Um, but yeah, we're a long way from that. Would you agree that, would you see the black-white only on one side? Because I would say it's on both sides. If you're saying something sensible that would maybe increase immigration, then some people would just tell you, yeah, but you're uh, destroying your aim is to destroy our culture, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, so this sort of idea that this is just a sort of globalist thing or a globalist plot is a, is the right wing version of the you know oh there are a bunch it's racist to do this. They're both, I think, ramping up the polarization and the rhetoric. And I think people need to accept that you know the the, the restrictionists need to accept that some people like the diversity and change, and then the the liberal side needs to also accept some people prefer. Stability, continuity, less change. And I don't see that on either side right now in any serious way. So in the book, you also develop some uh, policy responses. And one that you hinted at at the beginning was the framing and how people feel, how they see their values um, valued and represented is very important to them. Would you argue, argue we should? focus our policies less on changing maybe economic outcomes, which are very difficult to change anyway in the short while, more to changing actually people's feelings? Yeah, I think in terms of policy responses, that political communication side is, is more important because it's really the cultural psychological that is shaping um, the attitudes more. So I did a, an experiment where you know, when we talk about um, you know, immigration, a history of immigration in Britain and groups melting in, leaving things relatively unchanged, and how many politicians like Boris Johnson or Peter Mandelson or, or Michael Howard have a immigrant background, then actually amongst UKIP voters, the uh, support for a kind of a very sort of hard Brexit drops substantially. Um, and that's, I think, just reflective of the fact that when you're able to reassure somebody with that more conservative psychology, then that's how you're going to reach them. Whereas if you talk about more diversity, more change being great, and but look, we're going to be economically better off. Actually, we find most Leave voters are willing to take economic pain, actually, uh, up to 5% of their income to lower migration. And so the economic argument I don't think is going to cut that much ice. It will, for, say, for example, remain voters who want less immigration if there's an economic cost, they're not willing to pay it, so they'd rather have higher immigration if it's got an economic benefit. But for the leave voter, that's not the case. Last topic I want to touch from our dialogue is um, you also develop some 
answers to um, asylum and refugee policies in your book. Could you briefly elaborate on? Uh, yeah, yeah, so I think it's very important to, with this question, um, to have a, a clear line between uh, refuge, safety, um, receiving medical help, education, uh, even perhaps working, uh, and s permanent settlement. And I think the blurring of that line between refuge, giving people a safe place to be, uh, and getting permanent citizenship or settlement is causing a lot of problems because the sort of host populations are unwilling to grant settlement to refugees in large numbers. And I think we've seen that very clearly in Europe. We're seeing it in the U.S. right now. Um, but they, I think, would be more willing to grant so, so would be more willing to pay money, for example, to have secure facilities um, for people to flee to. Uh, that I think that would be more acceptable. And also to countries such as Japan and in the, in the Middle East that are much, or, or places like Saudi Arabia that are not willing to take any uh, migrants, they might be willing, more willing to do so if it just meant uh, offering safety and a refuge. Uh, so I guess I do think it depends what happens. I mean, if we've got about 60 million um, refugees in the world, and of course, we have many people who are claiming refugee status, so people from Central America who may have gang problems and may have poverty problems are coming into the United States. Um, I think it's, it's different with the Syrians. That's, a, that's more of a genuine refugee issue. But um, the numbers that will come if you have a kind of open policy where you can come in and then melt or disappear and never be deported. I think the numbers, the potential numbers, are extremely large. So there has, there's going to have to be some kind of a settlement on this issue. And I think that line between refuge and permanent settlement should be the line that we maintain in policy. Okay, I think that's a good point now to start our open floor discussion. If you just drop, um, you will be behind the microphone. Please introduce yourself briefly and importantly, uh, make sure that the microphone is switched on and talk straight into it so that the people on the YouTube can also hear you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Mark Bentink. Uh, um, I work for, for Rand Europe here in Brussels. Uh, I have two very brief questions. As we, um, as we move towards an um, ethnically mixed uh, society or societies, um, do you think uh, the, the Latin American countries could provide somehow a model uh, for managing the, you know, this, this, this mix, these mixed societies. I'm thinking of Brazil in particular. Uh, the Brazils have always struck me as fairly relaxed about, you know, uh, race, race, races, etc. My second question is: You ruled out, um, at least for the time being, uh, a correlation between the issues which you discussed and territorial issues. Um, however. As, again, as we move towards um, ethnically mixed societies, could you see a correlation nonetheless arising between you know, mixed societies uh, on the one hand and security and foreign policy issues on the other hand? Um, these are my questions. Thank you. <laughs> right. Interesting. Um, I'll have to ponder that second one. Uh, but yeah, Latin Americanization of, of race is something that's been talked about now with increasing diversity in Western countries. And I think you're right in one sense that we know that, say, in, the, in England and Wales, one of the things I didn't talk about in the book was the projection is that 
it's roughly going to be, it's 2% mixed race now, 7% by 2050, still pretty small, 7%, but then up to 30% by the end of the century, and then 75% 2150. So, th and, and granted, that's a long-term projection, but demography being the most um, uh, certain of, this, of the social science, or the, mo the most predictable of the social sciences. So we are moving in that direction of large-scale mixed race societies. I guess the problem with the Latin American model is the race stratification. So, so that the elites tend to be lighter skinned than the poorest people, right? So you want to avoid that um, race stratification. And I think there are some models, you know, you can look at, you know, small groups like the Hawaiians or the American Indians um, where there is racial variation. Or, or for example, Central Asians, you, you have the Turkmen, some of them look more East Asian, some of them more Caucasian. That doesn't seem to structure status uh, within the group. So I think that would be, but you're, you know, yes, mixing, but not necessarily the racial stratification that we see in Latin America. Um, so I do think these ethnic majorities will become more racially mixed, but I think that hopefully they won't have that Latin American stratification. So, uh, second point in terms of territory, um, yeah, there may be foreign policy effects if there is not if there isn't large-scale assimilation, for example, and you do have substantial diaspora communities, I mean, we know that that diasporas like the Cubans in the U.S. or, or the Israel lobby or you have, um, you know, the Tamils, you have all kinds of groups that then can play a role in their home countries or can lobby the U.S. case, let's say, and, and try and set the, ca the course of American policy towards Cuba, for example, has been affected by the Cuban diaspora. And so the question is how assimilated these groups become. The more assimilated they are, the less effect they're going to have on foreign policy. So one of the questions, say, would be Muslims overtaking Jews in the U.S. in the 2020s as a share of the total. Um, how much will that affect U.S. policy towards Israel? Uh, I, I mean, I think the issue in the, ca in the U.S. case is that the Muslim population is, is multi-ethnic, so it doesn't have the same unity as the as the Jewish population on those questions. But yeah, I think there are all kinds of foreign policy effects. Um, it's not clear. It'll depend on how assimilated these groups become. If they aren't that assimilated, if they become large, they will have more effect on policy. Yeah. Just a note on that. Elizabeth Warren just made an interesting turn on that matter because she was known to be a pro-Israel Democrat. And yesterday she made a very anti-Israel statement, so maybe someone in her campaign team gave her some updated demographics. Right, right. So yeah, certainly, certainly amongst the Democrats. Well, the Democrats, the Jews are still predominantly Democratic in, in America, but um, in Britain they're mostly conservative voters. But that's Uh, hello, Jamie Patel. Um, I have a lot to ask, actually, so I was wondering if I could split it up, otherwise this could get pretty unwieldy. Um, on the first, on the, on the data that you presented, I think one of the key things that jumped out at me, being a, a British citizen, is the way in which you equate, especially the, given the title of your book, you equate the immigration into America, the refugee crisis into Europe, and the immigration into the UK. Because the, the immigration into the UK, the one that caused that um, that rise in media stories was not differently was not ethnically different. So, do you, can you can you sort of delve into that a little bit more because it, that that kind of undermines a lot of what of the rest you're saying. Um, I think also linked to that, 
a lot of the concerns that we're seeing, a lot of the populists that are being elected in, in, um, in continental Europe uh, are based in countries where there isn't very much immigration. Famous examples being Hungary and Poland, where actually there's not a lot of uh, migration, well, at least not from um, non-European countries. So how, d how does that fit in with the models that you're kind of you're, you're showing up? Um, and again, just maybe another point, um, in the EU election graph that you showed of the, the rise of um, both populist and, and liberal parties, I think just a pernickety point, UKIP, the UKIP vote was taken by the Brexit vote, so that, that rise that sort of is shown by the, that bright blue line, I think needs a lot of explaining, because it's not, I think it, it shows off a, a, a much bigger rise than actually is the case. So how do you, how do you show, how do, you, how, how do these three different situations plus the fact that populism is rising in countries where there is no real immigration threat, uh, or at least immigration, actually, full stop, uh, sort of concern, chime with what you've been saying in your presentation? Yeah, really, really good question. So uh, the first thing, is, I mean, we have got quite a bit of time here, don't we? Okay, so I will try and get into a bit more detail. Um, the first thing to say is the British data, the Ipsos Mori series, the... You're right that post-2004, the EU accession countries, Poland in particular, there was a lot larger numbers than were predicted, and that, that no question that that plays into the rising profile of immigration. But it was only part of the story. So the non-EU inflow was higher than the EU inflow all the way from the late 90s to 2016. It's only as we get into 2016 that the EU inflow overtakes the non-EU. So both of them are important, even though I agree with you, the way the story is often framed is it's about EU immigration. But actually, the concern was already pretty substantial pre-2004. And it's both of these things that are, I think, playing a role. And don't forget, a poll is ethnically different from a white Britain, even though they may look, the, they are the same in terms of a physical appearance, but in terms of language, in terms of uh, you know, myths of origin and, and consciousness, it's, it's substantially different. So it's, they're both a, a, an injection of difference, let's say. So even if you're in Boston, uh, you know, it's mainly East Europeans, but that's still a major difference on your high street. And so you know, Boston was a major um, leave voting area. Um, the second point I think that you made, yes, yeah, so, so Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, what's going on in these countries that are ethnically pretty homogenous, limited immigration? So the, the question, I think, first of all, that you can see there's a different dynamic in, in East and West. So what I'm talking about is the West. Now, in the East, what's going on? The first thing we can say is that it's the sort of ex-communist countries that are inside the EU that vote for populist right parties, not the ex-communist uh, societies that are outside the EU, like Ukraine, Serbia, etc. So why is it the countries inside the EU and not outside the EU? And the way this is sort of framed is we, if we don't sort of man the barricades, we're going to wind up like them, like Germany, like Austria, etc. So it's, it's in reference to what's happening in other Western European countries, and this is being foisted upon us. We're going to have to become like them, and we cherish our ethnic homogeneity. The other issue is, is, is to do with the history, the historical baggage in these countries around, essentially being pushed around by whether it be Soviet Union or Austro-Hungarian Empire. So this memory of kind of... So I think there are some other uh, dynamics in the East. You can see it in Germany, which is really interesting, that voting for the AFD in West Germany is tied very much to uh, immigration. 
immigration numbers. Voting for the AfD in East Germany uh, is, is not, actually. So you, you, you can see the legacy, I guess, of that Iron Curtain even in AfD voting in Germany. Um, I do, so I would stick with the premise that in the West, this is a sort of immigration-related thing. Now, the other th point to make, however, is it's not just the white ethnic majority. So there are, we have to sort of explain things like the quite significant minority leave vote and the minority Trump vote. And there, there is a sort of second part to the book where I talk about national identity. So this is not uh, identity with a community of ancestry, but identity with the territorial political nation state. Uh, part of people's national identity is, is, for some people, is the ethnic composition of the nation that they know, the country that they know. So it, it can have minorities, yes, but maybe they are used to the country having a particular mix of groups. And so somebody who is, say, Latino may be used to the United States being white majority with minorities of African-Americans and Latinos, and they may actually be attached to that configuration. And so we see immigration is a key concern amongst Latino Trump voters. It's a key concern amongst leave voters in the United Kingdom, and they're, sorry, minority leave voters. So it's uh, minorities who are attached to the country as they know it or as they knew it growing up um, who are responding to a sudden change in their country's composition. So it's not just white voters, it's also uh, minority voters who have a particular type of national identity in which um, the country that they know, however that's constituted, they see it as changing in a way they, they don't like. So I think I answered. What was there anything else I did? Yep. Um, well, this is a second set, right. set of. All right. Um, what surprised me is this idea that we should be trying to cater to these deeply held psychological prejudices. In order, instead of trying to address them, um, especially given that a lot of these populists' votes were gained through lying, whether it's the Trump campaign or the Brexit campaign, uh, or the, the various statements that are made by the Hungarian and Polish governments. Why, so why should we try and um, ex sort of, yeah, cater to these deeply psychological prejudices when we don't do that with things like, say, sexism, where we say equality is actually an important thing and you should accept that? Right, yeah, you don't want to compromise on any principles around equal treatment or, for example, hatred of outgroups. So, so, for example, with Trump, when he sort of insinuates that Mexicans are, are rapists or we're, you know, we're going to shut down all Muslims coming into America, I think he should be absolutely raked over the coals for that. So that, that's terrible and, you know, absolutely. So I'm not... So there are definitely instances, plenty of instances, where these populists need to be called out uh, for racism, for whatever. But I think there's a distinction that, that is also clear in the literature between uh, hatred of the outgroup and attachment to the in-group or attachment to way of life. So, for example, in the American National Election Study, if you take a white American, um, their attachment to white Americans is not correlated with their coolness towards African Americans or Latinos. So a white American who is highly attached to being white is not cooler towards blacks and Hispanics than a white American who is not attached to being white. I think we need to sort of have a difference or a distinction between attachment to and dislike of um, the other. So dislike of the other, no tolerance for it, absolutely. But attachment to one's own group, attachment to one's own way of life, 
that is, I think, le a le legitimate thing. It's not the same as saying we're not going to grant equality or we're going to hate or fear an outgroup. It's, it's an attachment like uh, a minority being attached to their ethnicity, like an African-American being attached to Harlem as an African-American majority neighborhood. It's a similar, similar sort of sentiment. So we have to, I think, find a way of respecting conservative attachment to, it could, it's a similar to attachment to a, a historic building or a natural landscape or, or you know, so it's, it's that set of attachments. People don't want those to be changed radically. I think that's legitimate. What's not legitimate is uh, disparaging or generalizing about an outgroup or lying, as you say, and of course, we know that, yes, there's been plenty of lies told. Those have to be called out. But I think if we suggest that the only way to be is to want, you must celebrate diversity, you must celebrate change. I mean, you can't make, it's like saying you must like Marmite to some people. Some people just, they're not going to like it. And we know, I mean, this is deeply wired. And I just think if you push and push that message, you must love diversity and change for people who don't, then actually I think we're actually asking for trouble. That better to say, okay, can we get the people who like change to understand the people who don't like change and vice versa and come to an agreement. That's what I would be more in favor of. Yes, I wanted to come back to the Central Eastern Europe because uh, I would like to, to test another hypothesis with you because you say that you are not convinced that migration might be a driving factor for uh, high vote for the, for the populists. Uh, well, actually, in, in both countries you've mentioned, uh, Hungary and Poland, quite important recently was the playing on the anti-Semitism as a vehicle to uh, raise the votes for the extreme right populists. Uh, in Hungary, the campaign anti-Soros is clearly anti-Semitic campaign, while in Poland, the, the surge of the votes for the law and justice in the European elections uh, in the last two weeks were due to the uh, quite virulent campaign against the uh, American Congress resolution of the restoration of property of Jews that were taken uh, first by the Germans then by the, by the Polish state uh, after the war. So uh, maybe it is worth testing uh, whether in these closed societies the issue of, as you said, history and quite virulent anti-Semitism is, is, is to be checked. Uh, but to contradict myself, I, I, I would also say that in Poland, quite important factor was uh, uh, the, the arrival of, of a lot of Ukrainian workers. And we had quite a similar phenomena like in Britain that people were saying, we don't want migrants. They were saying about uh, Indians, but they were thinking about Poles. While in Poland, they are f saying, we don't want blacks or Arabs, but in fact, what they think, we don't want Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think when we want to draw parallels to, say, the 1930s, for example, where you know, migration was not the issue in, in fascism, but this idea of scapegoating a minority for particular problems, such as losing a war, uh, was, was, was central. So I think that this... This issue of history and historical baggage is more important in Central Eastern Europe. And so I think the, some of the analogies with the 30s and fascism, I, I still don't think they work that well, but I think they work perhaps better in sort of Central Eastern Europe than they do in the West, where it's, it's a, a 
the conditions are very different. Um, I still think, however, though, if you look at the, the way migration is weaponized by, I mean, Orban, it, it's really about saying, you know, we don't, I, I still think there's an effect of we don't want to become like that. We don't want the EU to tell us we must become a multicultural society like West. That, 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 that seems to be part of, it's not the only part of the story. So I'm certainly not denying, you know, absolutely that anti-Semitism is, is part of the story in the East, which is part of why I'm saying that the dynamics seem to be a little bit different East to West. I mean, the immig immigration is not experienced by the Central Eastern European countries as much. I mean, of course, the Ukrainians have arrived, but the, certainly the non-European immigration is much more a symbol uh, than it is sort of an actual reality. But, but again, I think that's why the, the dynamics in the communist countries are different, I would say. But I still think that sort of presence of migration in the West acts as a sort of, I mean, it's something that the populist leaders are able to sort of riff off of in a way to create the bogeyman of what might come, even though it hasn't come yet. Uh, maybe a quick follow-up from, yeah, yeah. from my side. Before we started, I just uh, saw a tweet that the whip of the Labour Party, I think, in the UK actually quit because of, uh, he said he could not agree to the rising anti-Semitism in the Labour Party anymore. Um, so it's not only an Eastern European phenomenon, of course, to activate anti-Semitism in European societies. Just a quick impression from yours on the UK thing, basically. What do you see happening there? How are these parties in particular Labour Party positioning itself on the immigration issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that oh, on immigration, well, there's the immigration and there's the anti-Semitism. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people who's reluctant to, to endorse these labels. On, I mean, the problem in a way is if you have somebody who's critical of Israel, even strongly critical of Israel, I think that should be okay. I think doesn't necessarily mean they're anti-Semitic. But of course, you have got elements in the party that have said nasty things about Jews, clearly anti-Semitic. Um, but I still like to believe that that's a very small part of the Labour Party. Um, but certainly, there have been figures in the Labour Party who say they're not doing enough about anti-Semitism. I'm, I'm really not in a position to judge the extent of these claims. But I think a few bad apples should not necessarily taint the the entire party. On immigration, um, well, I think Labour's in a difficult position because in a way, it's, it's similar to the Leave-Remain conundrum that Corbyn faces, that Labour needs a certain number of the Leave voters because many of its uh, constituencies that it needs to win are, are constituencies that voted Leave. At the same time, most of its voters and certainly most of its activists are Remainers. And, and I think the similar something similar is going on with immigration where Corbyn kind of needed to say something about immigration, which was that he didn't want uh, workers coming in and undercutting British wages. So he sort of signaled to the more kind of leave-oriented restrictionist part of the labor base, which is a minority. Um, but then the question is, if they go very much for an open immigration policy, then that could be... Again, this is something that their leave base is not going to like. So I think, <laughs> I think they've got a difficult choice, as, as do the conservatives. But um, yeah, I think this will be an issue once the Brexit, if it's resolved, um, assuming maybe there's a soft Brexit, let's say, uh, the question then becomes, I think immigration will return as an issue right now because everyone's talking about Brexit. And Brexit is fundamentally about the stability economically of the country. 
that's what people are worried about. Immigration has fallen down as a priority. Once this issue is sorted, if it is sorted, um, if it does get sorted and the economy is kind of safe and everything roars back, then I think immigration will become uh, an issue once again in a serious way. Thank you. Hi, uh, Terry Beswick from the Quaker Council for European Affairs. Um, I guess it's a, 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 an observation that so much of the research, I mean, this is, it's clearly written for a white majority audience. Um, and that's, that I find, I just find it interesting that, that, that there's less research on ideas about belonging and um, I don't like the word integration or assimilation, but the ideas of a uh, belonging, attachment, affiliation of those coming in, and much more of a focus on white, the uh, on research looking at white majority views. It may, of course, it may include some non-white voters in that, but it's not really centred from that perspective. It's it's the other way around. So that that's just a, an observation that I find interesting. That it's that there's rarely a, a counter. To that, and then I think the the part about um, kind of nostalgia and, and and conservatism, as yeah, as uh, as kind of being being an immigrant and being in spaces where this is discussed by other immigrants and second generation in the same in the same boat. It's it's it is a fascinating thing that we talk about um, the the complete lack of or, or very very narrow little part of history that we teach about how the world actually came into being and how it works and where wealth came from and even now how it flows, that there is still a supremacist notion of where value is created among which societies and where value is not created, which tends to be the blacker and browner parts of the world. And given, I mean, at least in the British uh, uh, historical context, that, un that lack of understanding of championing the Industrial Revolution knowing everything about it, but somehow missing the point about raw materials is fascinating and therefore gives rise to the ability to think about this wonderful history of Britain as being something that was created in a white island as opposed to as, which was much part of, much part of a, a bigger kind of global empire. So I wonder if, if can, we, can we actually tell, like telling more complete and honest stories of our global histories and current histories in terms of where wealth is created now, where it flows from and to uh, in terms of raw materials would help to provide a picture of historic, that there's been a hist always been a historical mix and exchange and that's what we're all part of, whether visibly or not, and that currently that is still part of an exchange where value is not only created in certain parts of the world. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So quite a few, quite a quite a lot in there. Um, first thing I'd say is that there's plenty in here about minorities. I mean, it's a 600-page book. So um, one of the things, I mean, I look quite a bit at. Obviously, this is a book about populism, so I do look at minority populist voters, uh, for example, and what. And there's been very little done on that. Um, the other thing is the literature. You know, this, there's very little literature focusing specifically or explicitly on ethnic majorities. So that is, you know, you can't write about everything. And this is <laughs> this is particularly, uh, I think, opposite because of the rise of the populist right, which is something that this book's about as well. Um, in terms of, I also talk a lot about minority identity in terms of national identity. So I argue that there are different 
So being British or English, let's say, uh, one's English identity may vary depending on whether one is ethnically white British or ethnically Afro-Caribbean or ethnically Bangladeshi. Uh, and one of the things that I'm arguing for in the book is that there are, if we think of national identity as a menu rather than a hymn sheet, then somebody from a, say, Afro-Caribbean background might identify with different symbols, different aspects of British life as part of their national identity, and that's fine. Somebody else who's got multi-generations on the land in Cumbria will have a very different, maybe they're more attached to landscape, etc. That's also fine. Uh, so I do talk about how immigrant groups will identify with the nation, and that'll be a different route, perhaps, than how long-settled majorities are identifying to the nation. So I, I would hope that, that there's plenty in here for uh, non-whites. It's certainly not uh, a book marketed at whites. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot on, on race mixing and, and et cetera. Um, in terms of the story of what's told, now here I think I would disagree in the sense that, I mean, many nations in Europe do not, did not have colonies. I mean, Scandinavia, for example, except for the Danes. Um, I don't actually think that colonial enterprise is necessarily that germane to this question of conservatism that, that people being attached to a particular way of life or countries as they know it. Um, so there will have to be change. I'm not denying there will be change, but it's a question of how fast. So it's not yes to change, no to change, but how fast. Um, and also in terms of the question of change in the past, there has been, there have been waves of migrations and invasions in the past in Britain. I think, however, there's also most of the time, most of the population of Britain has been native-born. So it's, it's both are true. It, yes, there were migrations, but most of the time, most of the population was native-born. Again, it's like the river. Both are true. Things are always changing, They're all, you know, and there's a story to be told about continuity and sameness. So I would like to see, you know, both of those stories told. That's all. So. Just uh, jumping in uh, with another question. You talk about race mixing and assimilation um, and so on, and immigrants kind of blending into the white majority identity, which kind of assumes or presupposes that immigrants in a large number and a large share do actually want to do this, um, for which the evidence is, is maybe, there's maybe not, not much research actually on what immigrants actually want in the soci society where they immigrate uh, into and how they identify with them. So what to do or what is there still possible to do if they just they know the society does not have much to offer to us in terms of identity for reasons which can be completely rational, basically. For example, this has a difficult past with our country of origin, so we don't want to associate with this nation and so on. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so we do have sort of reasonable data on intermarriage rates by group in different countries. Um, and so we know, for example, that in France, the Algerian and Moroccan population has a relatively high uh, outmarriage rate. And it, in the United States, the Latino and Asian population has a relatively high outmarriage rate. Now, this is partly affected by the size of the group. So the larger your group, if Latinos are now whatever, whatever they are, 18% of the U.S. population, it's going to be easier to find another Latino mate. Inter, so intermarriage may go down. Um, so it's partly mathematical, but 
On the other hand, we have groups such as the Pakistanis and Bangladeshis in England that have a very low outmarriage rate. So it partly depends on which group we're talking about. And yes, religion, and that's not just Muslim, but also Hindu and Sikh, uh, religion can lead to lower outmarriage rates. Um, and I guess the question is really how high these outmarriage rates are going to be over generations. I think we can see maybe in France, the Algerians, Moroccans will have a relatively high outmarriage melting rate. Iranians, perhaps in Germany, another group. But then again, yes, you're, you're right, there's some groups have very limited outmarriage. Um, the question will be longer term, I guess, which of these factors are, is, is more powerful, the demographic shift through migration, younger age structures, somewhat higher fertility, or the decline, so that's increasing diversity, whereas the intermarriage and assimilation is decreasing the diversity. Uh, if there isn't you know, significant intermarriage assimilation, then you're right, the diversity levels would continue to rise. And I, if that's the case, I, you know, on average, again, everything else being equal, that would tend to pr produce more support for populist right uh, parties, I would argue. Um, it's, it's not the only factor. There are other factors involved. Uh, but I still think there are eno you know, there's enough evidence of reasonably brisk interracial marriage to suggest that you know, this assimilation is taking place at different speeds in different countries. But you're right, there are certain uh, communities that, that would have a much lower level of, of this integration. But even because even intermarriage would not imply or guarantee that the resulting couple or family is then basically that the values from both societies are split exactly 50-50 or there are some new males coming up. It, come, it can be people coming from a very liberal, open, multicultural background uh, marrying into a very conservative family, for example, and they're completely adopting conservative values. Yes, that, that's right. So, I mean, one of the... In, in England and Wales, we have a, a census that asks about religion, so we can look at who, for example, if we take Islam and we say who moved from Islam, saying they were Muslim in 2001 to saying they had no religion in 2011, this is predominantly people, I mean, people who have a mixed ethnic background, half Bangladeshi, half white British, that's the kind of person that tends to move, is much more likely to move towards non-religion. Um, so I do think there's a link between intermarriage and um, secularization. We see that in France as well. But, but the question, the, the other thing which I sort of mentioned in the book is that you have to imagine a society in which the minority share is much larger and the mixed race share is vastly larger. And the question is how will that mixed race share identify? Which strands of their heritage will they choose to identify with? In the world of 2050, the, the West is going to be much, much smaller within the world, both economically and demographically. I think in that world, I, I just think that the sort of pull of the sort of European heritage in different European countries, that, that sort of connection to the past will tend to draw most members of the mixed group in that direction. Simply because that will be more distinctive, it'll be more, it's more established. Um, there will always be some who don't, and there will be people who are mixed who will stay with the exotic heritage, but I, I think, <laughs> and, and we can see this actually over long stretches of time in history, so you can look at a place like Turkey where there's all kinds of different DNA in the Turkish population from the Ottoman Empire days, um, from Byzantium, um, and yet it's the identity to the Turkic past, which is really a minority of the Turkic you know, heritage, which is 
where people are choosing to identify. So it's that people are always selecting on their bits of their ancestry to identify with. And I'm suggesting that in this mixed race majority, which will be emerging in the next century, that they will tend to gravitate more towards um, the sort of established uh, European heritage rather than towards these various different uh, groups that have married in. But I could be wrong, but I think the historical pattern would suggest there's always a lot of mixing, but there tends to be gravitation towards particular lineages and myths of ancestry. My name is uh, Pierre Snois. I'm um, a member of the uh, Royal Society for Political Economy of Belgium. Um, I just wanted to make one or two remarks. Um, first of all, I'm convinced that um, origin of people really matters to the white population. And uh, it's, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you take the case of the Vietnamese War and the fall of Saigon in 1975, it was followed by quite massive exit, exodus of Vietnamese citizens. And a lot of people forget that the French absorbed about one million Vietnamese over a period of uh, two or three years. It, was, it, it didn't show any opposition of significance from the French population at all. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the Vietnamese and the Southeast Asian population, in Europe, nobody ever talks about them because they appear to, even if they live am among themselves, they appear to have assimilated into white society or been, or if you like, just tolerated uh, very, very easily. So it shows that the origin of people does matter for the white population. The second remark I wanted to make is, that, is the following, is that a lot of people have uh, noticed that Pope Francis has, has a doctrine of the Catholic Church concerning immigration. And he has spoken out quite loudly about uh, the teachings of the Church. Um, however, if you look back at the history of the Church, you will see that going back centuries, St. Augustine had a policy of immigration. And uh, he said that everybody should accept immigrants as a, as, a, as, a human, uh, as, as a human reaction to the arrival of immigrants, but at the same time, they should not, these new immigrants should not disturb society and they should be assimilated into society, but they should not change the society. And so that is teaching which goes back many, many years, which shows that immigration and the attitude of the established population Really, it's, an, it's a very old story and goes back years and years. And the third remark I wanted to make, and that is more connected to the Belgian situation, uh, if you find um, people who vote populist votes it, in the right wing in Belgium, uh, and you will look that opinion polls show that immigration plays a very large part in their attitude and the way they vote. And one of the reasons is purely economic is that you have a system here in this country where uh, people benefit from rather low pensions, although they've contributed their whole lifetime to pension funds run by the state, etc. But then they see immigrants arriving and receive handouts 
from the state, as they see it, far larger than anything that they could expect to have during their lifetime. And this creates a problem of, uh, of unfairness in their eyes. And I think that these, and then the, the last minister for immigration in Belgium uh, was very, is a very controversial figure. But when he spoke in public, he very often quoted figures which were quite interesting. And he used to quote figures, he used to say, my own father, I, I once went to one of his speeches, he said, my own father worked all his life as a workman. He has 930 euro pension per month. And yet, I have to sign papers in the ministry granting much higher um, compensation to immigrants. He said, obviously, he says, people like the class that my father comes from don't accept that at all. The other thing is you, ha you have a policy here which is not sufficiently developed for teaching, for, I would say, for the integration of the new arrivals. Uh, the last time I listened to Mr. Franken, in fact, I went twice to listen to his speeches, uh, he said uh, among the, in the big influx of immigrants into Belgium, many Syrians, people like that who came uh, because of the war, they came into Belgium, he said, where now, this was at the end of last year, before he retired, before he resigned, he said, you know that of this mass of immigrants that came into Belgium in 2015, 2016, only 3% now have a paid job, and all the rest are supported by the state. So when these sort of figures come out, don't be surprised if you get people who will vote in the way that populists vote. So I just wanted to make these remarks to show how difficult the problem is, but at the same time, it is a question of attachment, as you say. It's, it's, if you can find a way to people to attach themselves to the new arrivals, it's, that's the way to go. Thank you. Right. Okay, so, so quite, a few, quite a few issues there. I mean, I think the Vietnamese um, issue, I wasn't aware it was quite so many uh, in France. I'm not sure it quite was that high. Um, but I agree with you that certain groups seem to have had an easier time of it. I mean, I, I think there was a reasonable amount of resistance to the Vietnamese arrivals in, certainly in Canada and Australia, uh, there was quite a bit of talk. So even though, you know, it is to some extent perhaps smoother for them than, say, the Syrians, I think... I'm not sure it's quite so black and white. I mean, in, so if, for example, if you look at the case of New Zealand where they voted in uh, a, a Labour New Zealand first government, it was a coalition with the Populist Right Party, uh, it was predominantly East Asian immigration that was, at, was the issue. Or, or even in Vancouver where I grew up, um, it was predominantly East Asian immigration that people grumbled about. I mean, so I'm not sure, I mean, part of the question, no, no questions, the degree to which a group is different culturally and how quickly they assimilate is is a factor. But, I mean, in the case of the Latinos in the U.S., again, they are in some ways similar Christians and so on. Um, but it's the speed, it's the fact that it's illegal in not all cases, but in some cases. Um, so it's a combination of these things. So I, but, so I do think that, the yes, the economics matters, that the cultural distance matters. Um, but I don't think it's quite a, a question of saying that Syrians are in this category and Vietnamese in this. I think it's a continuum. It's a shading of, of, of how different, etc. I do think the economics can matter, but I think 
that it's also refracted through the cultural and psychological. So the example of pressure on public services. You can ask a question of, say, Brexiteers and say, um, how important an issue for you is pressure on public services? Um, zero, not at all, 100, really important. And you get somewhere in the middle, sort of 47, 48. As soon as you put in immigrants putting pressure, two words, immigrants putting pressure on public services, it goes up to 70 out of 100, which, of course, if the concern is just about pressure on public services is something you're worried about, then the part of that problem that's to do with immigrants has to be smaller than the whole problem. So it's very hard to... I kind of think that what happens is you form a view on immigration first, and that's a lens through which you then see problems like competition for jobs, pressure on services. I'm not sure the pressure on services, the economic side alone, is enough to to get us to the populist right voting. Um, and, and of course, these groups are doing, I mean, I, my understanding was in Germany, the Syrians were actually doing reasonably well. But I, I mean, again, I don't know the complete data. You may know this better on, on how well uh, different groups are doing. But I'm, I'm still not convinced that, that it's this, this, this economic factor is what's driving it. Uh, but I, I don't deny that it's a part of the picture, but I think it's, it's seeing the economic problems through a lens where you have already made up your mind that you're, you're anti-immigration. Just a small remark on the, the German case. Um, there, of course, depending on what you read in the English-speaking press, it depends very much on the framing. I think there was an article in the New York Times and economists saying, no, everything is great. Basically, employment of rate of them is 60% or even higher, so uh, everything's perfect. Um, Raise Merkel. Right. And if you look at the other press, it's of course, well, employment rate might be high, but most of these people are in very low-skilled jobs and very unstable <laughs> employment situations, um, jobs that might soon fall prey to automation and awful kind of poor wages and poor conditions. So basically, these new arrivals ending in the low end of the wage distribution of Germany, also making, of course, very small contributions to the social security system because of their low skilled, low pay jobs. So it depends on what you read. I, there's right. not a definite answer today. Okay. Yeah, we need good data. I think that's the key. Um. Um, Benjamin Hamburg from uh, CEC European Managers. Um, we uh, haven't discussed the role of business or um, in, in, in the shaping of populism and also how um, well how they can contribute to a solution or how um, yeah what the problems are that are to be tackled from from the side of businesses and from managers that would interest me could you elaborate a bit more how you what are you pointing at um, well so you mean uh, content wise or um, particularly uh, what kind of problem do you want to see what would you like to see tackled in... Oh, oh the populism. Yeah. Well, uh, like, uh, but as, as a societal problem. Right. W what's the role of, of large business? Or well, or, or, um, well, I mean, the, 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 the topic that was mostly discussed here was um, the role of politics and, and, and um, policies of, well, more um, broad um, 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 cultural uh, issues, but not um, how... Um, yeah, uh, the actual um, 
yeah, or like how business, for example, if you say how, how wages um, play into that, and you, you mentioned that the economic um, um, variable is not as high as meant or as, as often framed, but how it is still, um, well, problematic, and, and yeah, how it... Okay, uh, well, well I just a few things about business which are interesting. I mean, generally business, historically, if we look at immigration history, particularly in North America, I mean, business has generally been in favor of higher levels of immigration because it means lower wages. That's sort of a, a fairly constant theme um, and that's typically been resisted by these kind of populist pressures that have pushed back on that. Um, and so I would expect that that's probably where business is today. So, but what is their, I mean obviously they have a role in integration in terms of, um, and, and to the extent there's a flexible labor market that people can enter without needing lots of qualifications, maybe that's a, a better way, you know, it, it makes integration a little bit easier. So the unemployment of immigrants in the English-speaking societies tends to be lower, partly because it's easier for them to enter these flexible labor markets. There are downsides of flexible labor markets. I don't want to, to minimize those, but to the extent businesses can absorb, let's say, uh, low-skilled immigrant populations without requiring lots of certification, and you know that's probably a positive for for integration. Um, Thank you. My name is Mary McGlynn, and I'm an American and a Democrat, and I really hope that Trump loses the next election. However, looking at your charts and seeing the toxicity of diversity to the other group of people who don't like change, I become scared that he will win. When I see you, uh, the MC, and your talk about the economy, I think maybe there's a chance if the recession comes that Trump will lose. It, it's, I think both issues of diversity and economics play a part. It's just a question of which one will be on top at the time. I wonder what both of you think. Well, yeah, I think if, the, if there is a recession, that's certainly gonna help the Democrats. Uh, and also because when the economy, when people are worrying about the economy, they're not going to be worrying as much about things like immigration. And we saw that in the Euro, uh, Eurobarometer series that where 2007-8 immigration was a low-ranked issue. Now, that's this partly due to the numbers as well, but it's also partly due to a displacement effect that when people are worrying about the economy, like in Britain, then immigration has a lower profile than when the economy is just sailing along, then other issues emerge more. Um, the diversity question, yeah, the U.S. is heavily polarized, and you know, if Biden gets the nomination, I would be more hopeful that Trump will lose, but I think if one of the other candidates gets it, then it's going to mobilize the base more heavily to turn out, um, because, and, and again, it's partly about symbols, but, but this question of 
what is America and which America uh, is represented is, is becoming central. I think that the Democrats are not, I think they're making an error, not Biden, but some of the other candidates who are effectively s not saying anything about deportation, what they're going to do about the um, illegal immigration problem. I think that's a mistake. I think they need to have a line on what they're going to do to control. They can't just attack the uh, you know ICE, ICE and, and border control and deportation. They have to have a line on how they're going to get control of the situation. So I think if they had that, then they would win relatively easily. But <laughs> what's that? Yeah, they hesitate to go there. I think this is where there's a problem because it's seen that you know controlling borders is seen somehow as victimizing minorities. That somehow that the meaning of racism again. There's been this creep in the meaning. The expansion symbolically of that to to include immigration control, I think that's, I think an improper shift of the meaning of this term, which should be reserved for discrimination, unequal treatment, hatred of of the outgroup, for example. So I th I would just wish there was movement there. Obviously, we know Trump is off the deep end in many of the things he's saying, and I wish he would not employ this overheated rhetoric about uh, criminals coming across the border. So I think both sides could tone it down, um, but I think, yeah, if you're hoping for the Democrats, I think they need to have some message on the border. So. And if I met, yeah. I mean, if the Democratic Party takes any advice from, from me, <laughs> and I don't think they have any reason to do that, um, running on the hopes of a recession will not be a winning platform. My name is uh, Viviana Mafte. I'd like to know if you believe there is a connection between mobility, the natives inbound or outbound mobility for education, for professional reasons, for family reasons, I don't know, and the attitudes towards uh, immigrants. Because we know that mobility is a part of the learning process and the more we know, the less we fear. And um, I, I my opinion is that the attitude towards immigrants is largely shaped by uh, fear by the degree of knowledge we have about them. So maybe also education can play uh, a part in this uh, mm. process. Yeah. Thank you very much. Right, right. So this, we do know that people who move in areas are slightly more liberal on immigration. The question we don't know is, is, is it sort of liberal immigration attitudes that are con you know, c causing the moving or, or the moving that somehow changes their mind about immigration. Um, I'm more partial to that first explanation that there's a certain type of person that is more, because of these deep psychological values, more likely to move, more likely to select into higher education. Most of the reason, that, you know, a large part of the reason that people in higher education who have a degree are more liberal is because people with higher openness, one of those big five personality traits are more likely to select into higher education. So even at age, you know, surveys that, one survey that, that was done of people I think age 16 or was it age 15? And you could already see that these people were more liberal and they were more likely to select into university. Um, there's some effect of meeting the other, you know, people who live in a more diverse neighborhood, not a more diverse city, that has no effect. If you have a more diverse local neighborhood, that has some effect on your immigration attitudes. So there is some effect of this, but I think it's quite small. I think that, um, I don't think fear is the main driver. I mean, I just, maybe this is where we disagree. I think that is more around attachments. So for example, in the US, 
um, people who are attached to their ancestry, white Americans who are attached to their ancestry tend to be more likely to be attached to being white and more likely to be, uh, because of that, anti-immigration. It's not because they fear the out-group, but they're attached to their own group, their own way of life. So I think it's not the same as fear, but I, I agree with you that plays a role. But anyway. I have a sample question just here. Sorry, sorry please yeah, use the microphone. Go ahead, yeah. I, I think that Trump gained thanks to the fear argument. I think that is clear. There's also a part of disinformation or lack of information and that's also in the, in the Brexit case because uh, some of the arguments in favor of the Brexit were actually lied. Yeah, I don't, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. And Trump lies all the time. So I'm not denying any of that. I'm just saying when we are trying to explain um, what's motivating people, I, I just don't think those explanations are going to get us very far. I mean, people, whatever information you give them, there's going to be um, what's called motivated reasoning where they have a sort of prior view and they'll filter the information to confirm the prior view. So it could be falsehoods, it could be true information. So I'm just not sure the information effects on their own are, are really going to tell us much. But anyway. And I think from the scientific angle where you're coming is more, basically this contact hypothesis is more, people make more contact with immigrants and the attitudes would change. I think the evidence for this hypothesis is not really settled yet. Right. Also it's on the broad picture, if you think Immigration, uh, for example, by guest workers has been happening to Germany since the 1950s. So you could assume by now basically everyone would have had to be in touch with immigrants. So attitudes should have linearly improved over time. So basically a stable, positive view, which has not happened. And on both sides, I would say immigrant, we have seen the data also assimilation of immigrants has actually decreased over generations has actually reverted in many European countries. So I don't think it's this, li this linear process is supported too much by the, this. No, I think, evidence. yeah, it's, we've seen, so the, a lot of the research on the contact hypothesis has been small group, like classroom-based. So you bring people who are, say, Protestant and Catholic in Northern Ireland together. Their attitudes towards each other improve. But I think the, the sense is we don't know what happens when they go away or go back to where their neighborhoods are. What we see, I think, is at the small scale, we do see some effect, I would say some small effects of the contact hypothesis at the local level, but at anything larger than a local neighborhood level, um, you can often get the reverse effect. So if you, if you are living in a county or a, a municipality that's diverse, but you live in a relatively non-diverse pocket of that municipality, then you're, you might even be more threatened. So it, it I agree, so threat does play a role. I'm not, I'm not saying it plays no role, but I don't really think this is now in Western Europe anyway. Maybe in a very homogenous, 100% homogenous country, then yes, the fear of the unknown uh, plays a role. But I think once you're into uh, uh, several percent, as you mentioned, a, a historic experience with migration, I think it's much more about attachment and belonging and sense of loss and the sense that difference is disorder. I mean, again, amongst that part of the population, not everybody, but again, part of the population feels this way. But Sorry, we have two people over there who have not asked a question yet, but who want to, so I would ask you to, you still have a question? Okay. Sorry. Let me Don't be shy. Right <laughs> and, uh, just please be, be quick if it's possible, then we go to you and then we collect. Okay, I just didn't think I was first. Um, 
Well, I had a question about your solution. It was um, about framing. Um, and you said uh, you, you should say uh, nothing will change because people who are conservative will, uh, will be maybe okay with super diversity if you say nothing will change. But I think that's lying because I think the society should change because it should be less racist uh, to, to make it work. So w what do you think about that? Well, I, I'm certainly in favor of less racism um, in terms of less hatred or fear of outgroups or discrimination of outgroups. And I think a lot of the attitudes are moving in the right direction on views on intermarriage, for example, or views of having a boss who's a minority. I mean, the, certainly the studies in that I've seen in the US and Britain, uh, but I think even in Europe, very much confirmed that there has been a, these attitudes are, are improving, uh, have, uh, have improved a lot. But um, I think what I'm talking about is how you frame immigration. So one thing we don't hear about is, I mean, who knew that intermarriage, say, between Latinos and whites, eh, or between um, white French people and Algerians and Moroccans was quite high. Nobody knows that. So there is already a lot of voluntary assimilation and mixing going on, uh, which nobody knows about. And I actually think there's a story, a positive story that could be told. That it's not just the case that society is getting more and more diverse. It's also becoming less diverse in some ways. So second generation maybe doesn't speak the language, maybe you're getting more intermarriage. Um, so there are ways in which society is becoming less diverse, which is also important to talk about. And I think to say it's getting be more and more diverse, you just got to get used to it. I think that's just not the message. Already people are overestimating immigrant share, Muslim share, by a factor of two, three, four, whatever. I th actually think the goal should be to try and, and reduce and dampen down that sense that things are completely changing. So I think certainly if you're trying to appeal to, I think there is a way to appeal to these voters by telling the truth. It's not a lie. In fact, we're not hearing the full truth when we just hear about diversity because actually there's many ways in which society is becoming less diverse and that's not something we're hearing about. So I think it is the truth. I'm not saying, I'm certainly not in favor of lying. Okay, just um, a, a short question on the data. Um, um, you and, and also somewhat related to the framing thing um, in the presentation. You you mentioned the press coverage um, and, and how that sort of, of course links somewhat to to the level, to, to level of migration uh, or immigration. Um, however, um, is there any differences in terms of say tolerance in terms of mobilizing voters on whether the press coverage is negative or positive or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the studies find that even in um, what you might think of as liberal outlets like the New York Times, that the so coverage on him, if there's immigration stories, they are, you could say, they are more negative. Um, there are some positive stories, but, but even there, you, so, so most of the stories would probably have perhaps a negative aspect to them. Um, yeah, I d I'm not sure if I've seen studies that have found many so positive, you know, Newspapers that have a very positive message on immigration, does that you know, lead people to be more tolerant? I think that would be an interesting study, actually. Um, but I think it's very hard to, you know, some people will then go to talk about, well, if we could just fix the press, 
then we'll fix our problem. But I think that is very tricky in a sort of increasingly fragmented media landscape where the internet is playing a big role now, online is playing a big role, um, blogs, podcasts, etc. cetera. Um, I think that's very difficult. I think that the media is going to do what it does, but I think that, um, yeah, I mean, there will be media effects, uh, no doubt about it. There's always that question of is the media just reflecting society or is it shaping society? Uh, and it's a, it's a very hard one to answer with research methods, although you mentioned that you can look at uh, laying cable into new neighborhoods. If that's random, then you can maybe say that... I okay, didn't say I believe you, so. I just say you can say, aha, we can show that it's from media to voting or to attitudes because the cable was laid in a random way rather than Fox News being laid in conservative areas. It's, if it's laid everywhere, you can then say, okay, so they introduced the, the cable the media here and look what's happened. A study shows Republican turnout increased. So, but <laughs> I would like to grant you the last question of the day, if it's short. Yeah, uh, Sorry, the microphone is. Hi. Um, I mean, this is what agenda-setting theory is, which will tell you that you can't, that newspapers don't dictate what people think, but they do dictate what people think about, and you yourself talked about the relevance of salience and how that does have an impact um, on it. So you could draw around that circle if you started thinking about agenda-setting theory. But I wanted to highlight when you talked about segregation and contact, is, again, it's, it, I wasn't saying that your book was written for it, well, it's, it's written for a white audience in the sense of, for example, understanding that segregation and people living in very non-diverse societies or separating themselves. My question is always, where did the houses come from that all of the immigrants moved into? White flight. How did certain areas become segregated and um, segregated from others? Zoning. So I think that the point about the importance of having a perspective of what are the policies that have either accidentally, incidentally, or, or kind of proactively created a situation of difference and resentment, which goes back to the point about jobs as well. It's, it's fascinating that no one is attacking businesses for undercutting wages or hiring people of migrant descent or migrant backgrounds, but blaming immigrants themselves. And I think if you, if you had if you had more rounded picture of both what, how people see it, that, okay, this is the impact on jobs, or this is the impact on housing, or that uh, this is the impact on language, but you also had the corresponding story of uh, withdrawing services for kind of uh, language um, support for new immigrants, if you had the story of zoning requirements, if you had the story of white flight that leads to spaces where immigrant communities communities like ever, I mean the most segregated communities are white um, but that's not seen as segregation so again it's just a way it's not to say that this isn't a valid that it's written for a white audience in the sense that you haven't taken it on, into account that but it's to say it's a selective look as you said yourself that it's it's not looking trying to address all of it but there are researchers out there studying usually most often people of color and therefore probably not that not significant in the pool of wider research but it would be important to complement some of the stories around what the 
kind of structural responses and policy responses have been with the stories of sociologists, historians who are looking at patterns of demography and change from a migrant community point of view. That, that would be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess my quick response, I think there's a lot of good points there. I mean, <clears throat> I actually think minority, a lot of minorities are, are saying we should look precisely at white flight or we should look at the majority. We shouldn't just think about ethnicity as something minorities have. And I think to that extent, I'm actually in line with that. I mean, I'm looking at, at whites as an ethnic group who are defending their own interests. So the way you know, sociologists have considered minority groups you know, as being ethnic and whites are not, well, I'm saying actually whites are just as much as, as minorities. So I think I am taking that on board. And also, so for example, white um, flight and, and, and um, God, what would I say, moving, whites moving to areas where they are already a large substantial majority. I mean, I do talk about that quite a bit in the book, saying that a large part of the segregation issue, in fact, an increasing part of the segregation issue is whites moving out of diverse neighborhoods towards less diverse neighborhoods, and it's less about minority self-segregation. So I think I'm actually speaking to some of the things you're talking about. Um, there's a chapter on, on um, residential uh, movements in the book, but, but I, I agree with you. I think the big the minorities are moving out of their areas of concentration increasingly into these super diverse areas. So, but what's occurring is that the white population is selecting towards more heavily white areas. So I, I agree with you. In fact, the segregation picture going forward is going to be probably more determined by white mobility. So yeah, I agree with you there. Okay, thanks. We are at by the end of the long seminar, um, which you have enriched greatly by your views and knowledge in this discussion. Thank you very much for staying around. Thank you very much, Eric, and for coming and addressing all these points. Um, I hope you also enjoyed um, being with us today, and we all hope to see you next time in our Medium Seminar series. Thank you. Welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University in London, Eric Kaufman. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Uh, as always, before we get into the interview itself, tell our viewers and our listeners a little bit about who you are, how are you, where you are, what's been your story? Well, my story, I mean, I have a very kind of cosmopolitan background to begin with. So I was kind of born in Hong Kong, grew up in Canada, uh, moved to London. Um, you know, my, I've got, you know, Jewish, Chinese, Latino in my, in my background. So I've got that very kind of international, lived in Japan for eight years. Um, but the study, or, you know, what I study is nationalism, and that's partly because if you grow up abroad, you're much more aware of 
you know, it's problematized the idea of what is your country, what's it about. So I developed this interest in nations and national identity. So that's something I've focused on for over 20 years. And uh, you've got a book that that's uh, what we'll be talking about predom uh, predominantly in this interview. It's called White Shift, which is right. coming out very soon. Y yes, yeah. End of October in the UK, uh, end of January in the United States. And you've been kind enough to provide us an advanced copy, which I've read is absolutely fascinating. It's kind of dynamite, I think <laughs> it's fair to say. Uh, and, um, you know, let's get straight into that. I think the main narrative uh, at the moment when we talk about populism and nationalism and all these things is... Look, it's the Rust Belt, it's poor people who are freaking out about their job prospects and their future economic security and all of that. And what you do in your book is essentially debunk all of that. And if it wasn't called White Shift, I think it would be called It's Immigration Stupid. Right, exactly. So a lot of the, uh, the, the media narrative around populism immediately after, say, the Trump or Brexit vote, turn to you know who voted for Trump or who voted for Brexit and where do they live. And you can see that the cities tended to be, say, remain voting and, and outlying areas tended to be for leave. And those areas tend to be a bit more deprived. So people kind of jump to these conclusions. Well, it's the people, the left behind. They're the ones who voted uh, to leave or they, they voted for Trump. The problem with that, of course, is that, you know, just take London as a city. It's got you know, a large number of people who are not white British. It's got a large number of people with university degrees, a large number of young people. So that makes it fairly unusual demographically. So the only real way to do that study properly is to take a white working class person in London and a white working class person in the north, in a, in a, in a mining town, for example, and compare them. And when you do that, you actually see, a, if anything, that person in London is slightly more likely to have voted leave. So that's the kind of method where you're actually looking at individuals individual-level large-scale survey data, not looking at these election maps or talking about opioid crises or so on. So, yeah, the, the first takeaway really is that uh, it's almost all about immigration when we talk about right-wing populism, not left-wing populism, Podemos and Corbyn. That is about the economy, but right-wing populism in the West, not, again, in India or in, even in Eastern Europe, in the West, it's about immigration. And the ac academic literature is actually pretty solid on this as well. Uh, the academic literature shows this and wouldn't dispute this. Now, some, of course, would dispute it, but certainly when it comes to immigration, a lot of the academic, there was a meta-analysis done, which is an analysis of all the literature, and they, they find essentially that how poor you are, whether you're unemployed or not, whether you've lost your job, those are not things that predict your immigration attitudes. And these are not things that are driving right-wing populism. So the mainstream narrative right now is essentially uh, people have nothing to, to live on, the people don't have a job, like you say, and they're lashing out against immigrants because that's where we normally channel our anger when we've, we've lost out and on whatever. And you say... Well, I say no. I say essentially what this is about is anxiety over ethnocultural change, threats to identity. I mean, I'll give you a, a kind of question that we might ask people. Say in this country, we ask Brexiteers, you know, white British Brexiteers, how concerned are you? Uh, how much of a problem is uh, pressure on public services? Zero to 100. 100 being, it's a big problem. Um, and people give it about a 40, you know, Brexit, leave, leave voters give it about a 47, 48 out of 100. And all you have to do is stick the word immigrants putting pressure on public services. So it's the same question, how much of a problem is pressure on public services, but it's immigrants putting, just two words, pressure on public services. It goes from sort of 48 out of 100 to 70 out of 100 
For Remainers, it's the reverse. And actually, it makes sense. What the Remainers are doing actually does make sense, because if the problem is pressure on public services, the part of that problem that is accounted for by immigrants has to be smaller than the problem itself. So it makes no sense hmm. to get a number moving from, say, 48 up to 70, because the problem, the, the immigrant-fueled part of the problem cannot be larger than the whole problem. But that's just a way of, by way of explaining that this is not driven by people's worry about pressure on public service as economic things, which is sort of the narrative of probably both parties in a way, because that's what they know. They've got economic policy tools. It's also safer because we can talk about, well, people are feeling pressure on material things, schools and hospitals, and that's why they're upset about immigration. It's not that nasty cultural stuff, but actually it is that cultural stuff. Well, let's break that down when you say the nasty cultural stuff. Right. What, you're not, uh, I've read your book very carefully, so you're not saying that the majority of the people who are on the populist right hate immigrants and they're racist, right? You're not right. saying That's, that. I'm not saying that, no. I actually think we need to open up a conversation about white identity, first of all, and secondly, something I call the white tradition of national identity, uh, and to, to do so in a fair-minded way. So... There is a certain kind of toxicity around the subject of white group identity by Mitchell. Oh, by, really? By, by, <laughs> <laughs> is, is that right? I hadn't noticed. Right. So, and, and, you know... It uh, never ends well, though, does it? <laughs> no, Let's no, be no. fair. Well, when you get three, a group of people together and go, right, we're white, and we identify for being white, it tends to end in camps. And <laughs> well, no, I, I disagree with you. So, for example, I don't think identifying as white or identifying as black or identifying as Hawaiian, you know, we have to look at these things differently. I mean, all of those identities can be abused. You can go, you can fixate and be extremist about it. But just if you think about the world, you know, 80% of the world's countries have an ethnic majority. You know, the Persians in Iran, it could be Tswana in Botswana, Japanese in Japan, etc. Those, those, you know, these people identify with their group, with their culture, and they're not out killing each other. Now, some will, but, but when we think about what are the predictors of genocide, for example, it's, it's, an, it's an ideology 